Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. For this episode of Making Media, we hosted founder and CEO of ConvertKit, Nathan Barry. Now, when we launched Making Media, someone immediately referenced Nathan's podcast as an example of good inside baseball content. So I did what any normal human being does when given that intel, and I proceeded to listen to hours of his episodes, read about 10 years worth of blog posts. Yes, I even listened to some of his appearances on other podcasts. My takeaway from all of this was that Nathan might be the most transparent business builder that I've ever come across. And he's conveniently built one hell of a newsletter software business while operating that way. So we dive into the various hype cycles of newsletters, the evolution of the creator economy, and Nathan's own approach to content and transparency. Whether you're a media executive at a major company or an individual creator in the first inning of launching whatever you are launching, I truly believe you can learn a ton from Nathan. It is a nuanced conversation. Please enjoy this conversation with Nathan and the motivational vibes that spill into our debrief. All right, Nathan, thanks for joining us. I want to start off talking ConvertKit. You launched this in 2013 as a better solution to MailChimp. Fast forward 10 years later, we're in a much different spot in terms of where we stand with the service offerings, with others in the market like a Substack or a Beehive but also just the general adoption of email and your creator economy. So if you just look back 10 years ago at the problem you were solving then, and then fast forward to what you think you're solving now, how much does that differ and where are we today? The market is entirely different now. The creator economy, as people describe it, did not exist 10 years ago. Or at least it didn't have that name. People were still earning a living online Blogging was the most popular form. Email was both the best way to sell products and earn a living. And if you asked anyone else, they'd say it was totally dead. And so you lived in this in these two different worlds. And emails had like, I don't know, maybe three resurgences in popular media in the last 10 years. And we're in the middle of a big one right now. Or maybe we're coming down the other side of one. I don't know. When Facebook shuts down Bulletin and Twitter shuts down Review and the hype cycle... And that wave has died out a little bit. And now we're just back to like the steady execution, which is where ConvertKit has always been. That's just what we've always done. What were the other two cycles that you would point to out of curiosity? In like 2015, I can't remember what sparked it, but there was a trend, maybe especially in the VC and tech world where all the VCs started newsletters. And then there was another article that got shared around a bunch. I don't remember if it was New York Times or somebody else in 2019 time frame that actually kicked off the Substack wave. 
and all of that. And so I think you see that in any market, whether it's the creator space or something else where you see these trends happen. And some people are really good at jumping between the trends. We all know the people who are like, have an ICO one day and then they're into NFTs the next. And then they're probably running an AI newsletter today, just perfectly hopping trend to trend. And so that happens a bunch. A lot of these things have happened on a really small scale compared to the overall market. MailChimp is still a billion dollar run rate company and they, I don't know, have 30% market share, maybe something like that. They're huge. But if you look at ConvertKit, we're 34 million a year in revenue. And so I have to remind our team, like we've come a long ways, but we are 3.4% of MailChimp's revenue, not 34, 3.4. It just goes to show how a lot of these trends that are even happening, even with like Substack, for example, still absolutely tiny compared to what's going on in the broader email market. Just from your specific point of view, do you think that market, it to me feels very consensus today. And I think a lot of that is not cyclical. There are secular reasons why the value of an email address is so important, why that real estate is so important. But when you think about the size of the overall market, do you think that's something that the TAM continues to expand where that 1 billion 30% or like you mentioned, 3.4% should be substantially bigger as an overall pie as well? Yeah, I think so. Just what we've seen in the creator market 10 years ago, if you had an email list of 10 to 20,000 subscribers, that was a big audience earning a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year as a creator. If you think about someone like Leo Babauta, who wrote a website called Zen Habits, Time Magazine named him one of the top twenty-five websites that makes the internet great. Those numbers were pretty small compared to today. Now, average to successful professional creator is a hundred thousand subscribers and is probably earning one to three million dollars a year. So audience sizes are about ten times what they were a decade ago, and revenue is about ten times what it was a decade ago. And that's before you get into like your star level creators of like your James Clears and Tim Ferriss and others who are multi-million subscriber email lists. And that was just not something that happened a decade ago. Yeah, no, it's really interesting to see how some of these people have turned what was viewed as second rate to a website into the actual destination or the actual main asset. There's this connection that people have. If you think about all social media interaction between a content creator and a fan, there's basically two formats, push and pull. So polling is where I'm remembering, oh, there's a new episode of this podcast that comes out every Tuesday at 8 a.m. I'm going to go listen to that. Or years ago, I read a ton of content from an author named Chris Gillibo. And I knew every Tuesday and Thursday, he published a post. I don't even need to subscribe. I love this stuff and I'm going to go check that out. And so that's where you're remembering to check if your favorite creators have done that. A lot of social media and all that is pulling, relying on the consumer of the content to go check for it. Now, there's things like RSS and other things that will push it into your feed, but not to the same extent. And so email gives you this, as a creator, gives you this ability to push content, whether it's a new essay, a new podcast, or something that you're trying to sell, and to really have complete control of who you're pushing it to, in what format. I can change the message, like if both of you are on my list, I can send the email out and I can send different content because one of you is in my paid membership and one of you is not. I can customize all of them. It's the best medium that exists today on the web for pushing content to readers. And so that's why until that part gets changed or supplanted by something else, 
email is going to reign supreme. You had this fun conversation with Sam Parr where you were talking about there's the value of a Twitter follower versus TikTok or LinkedIn or something else, and then comparing it all to email. You tapped into RSS a little bit there, which is some form of push. It's different real estate because I'm opening up my email every day, not necessarily opening up my podcast app. I am, but I'm not the normal consumer. Do you think when you look at those two things connected to one another, email subscriber versus RSS subscriber, you have a podcast. How do you think of the value of those two things next to one another? Comparing like email to TikTok or email to YouTube is one thing because TikTok and YouTube are push. You don't have a lot of control over it because there's a strong algorithm in the middle. If I'm posting something, is it getting to 20%, 40% of my subscribers? The more something focuses on a discovery-based algorithm, then the less your content is reaching your own existing subscribers and followers. So podcasts are interesting because you don't have the same push ability, right? I can't be like, oh, here's a new special episode, breaking news, pushing this out, and it's a notification on everyone's phone or top of their inbox. But the content itself is so much higher fidelity. Actually, one of my favorite things that just happened, Arnold Schwarzenegger has a daily email that he writes on ConvertKit. His daily pump email, it's really good. And he just turned it into a daily podcast. I think he announced it yesterday. What's fascinating about that, now you've got Arnold, who has one of the most distinct voices in the entire industry, reading you this podcast. And that's fantastic. Now, the crazy thing is, it's all AI. He trained a model on his voice. You can't tell. You get halfway through his announcement, and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And then you're like, oh, and by the way, I don't have time to read this. (laughs) But I think having someone in your voice, like I know exactly what Sam Parr sounds like, all of that, it's so much higher fidelity but you don't have the same ability to push content. I think those are the trade-offs between email and podcasts. Given your history, both doing all of this stuff individually and now as the head of a business, does any of it matter or is there any big difference between doing it as an individual and doing it as a brand, particularly doing anything about newsletter, podcast, any kind of media format? Are the rules different or are they the same? Asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. I was going to say, I think it can be harder to get started as a brand because people are used to following individuals. At the same time, if you have such a defined format, what you all at Colossus have done with business breakdowns is fascinating to me because the format is so defined. And yes, you have similar hosts rotating through and I start to recognize people, but the format is king. I'm not looking at it and being like, oh, Jesse Puji's not hosting this one. Like I'm out. I'm skipping this one. I'm going to the next one. There's none of that feel to it because... The format and the brand that promotes it is so strong. But on the other side, I've seen a lot of companies start podcasts or podcast networks that have been brand-driven. They have a higher budget. It's well-produced. And you usually don't connect to the host in the same way. And it usually stalls out. And it's the same thing like brand Twitter accounts or brand Instagram accounts. Like They just don't connect in the same way as an individual does. I think it's tough. We probably break down some people who have done it well and, and others who haven't. But I think Colossus is a good example of doing it well. You have the hybrid of invest like the best being Patrick's show and then business breakdowns. You can rotate through hosts and guests. Generally speaking, though, most brands will struggle to get a, a podcast or a creator fan relationship off the ground more than an individual would. 
Do you think there's others that have done it well? And I think there are definitely examples in the newsletter space. You could take Morning Brew, The Hustle, where those were individual voices, definitely writing those at the get-go, but they were able to scale on top of that. Text is different because you can hear the voice, but you don't really hear the voice. You're reading the voice. Once you get into podcasting, it becomes a different story. Just from your perspective in the podcast space, do you think there's others that have done it well from a brand perspective? There's a podcast network called Rainmaker that started a few years ago. The guy's out of copy blogger and then they built another software product and they really tried this play. Their content was super high quality. They recruited great hosts for each show. I think it just stalled out. Like they couldn't get traction. The other thing is, I think a lot of getting a new show off the ground takes so long and a creator will grind it out for a long time because they don't need that much results from it. The first three years of the podcast... Maybe it's terrible. Maybe it's getting 500 to 1,000 downloads an episode. And the creator can like stick with it. The brand has to make a decision of like, hold on, why am I paying a host and an editor and we're promoting this? I'm spending 25 grand a month or something on this podcast that I'm paying $5 per listen. <laughs> you know, when you actually look at our... It's not cost of goods sold, but you get the idea. And so I think a lot of brands pull the plugs on these projects or it's really reliant on one person is the talent and then they leave. I think that HubSpot's doing an interesting model. It turns out it's really hard to spin up shows. And so we'll just buy the shows <laughs> or buy the rights to the shows. And so they're basically saying, all right, I'm not going to spend money incubating. We're not doing the angel investing approach to podcasts. We're doing the private equity approach to podcasts where we're going, this already works super well. We'll just pay you a ton of money to come on our network. And they are using it to incubate some of their own shows. I'd be curious how well it's working because you hear them advertising a ton of their own shows that some that are really established, but then others that are just getting started. And I don't know. I don't know if the shows that they incubate are doing as well, even with the firepower of 20 top 100 podcasts promoting them. Yeah, I think particularly on the podcast side, we found it certainly as well. It just takes a long time to grow. You have to be committed to the grind. And I think Spotify found this in the last few years as well. You can't just hire star names and then expect them to end up with a big podcast because for various reasons, it might not work out so well. We talked a little bit about changes to the creator ecosystem over time. Like if you were advising a new creator who had some bright ideas and had an interesting idea, like what platform or what tools would you advise them to start with? Would it be a newsletter and a podcast, a YouTube, Twitter, TikTok? What's kind of the toolkit to begin with today? I think it depends on the strength and natural inclination of that creator. You need two things for sure, though. You need one place where you can really push content to your fans and you have that strong direct relationship. And then you need one place that has great discovery. And without those two things, you're going to really struggle. If you have to choose only one, then the great discovery is more important because you need something you need a way to get out there. Otherwise, you're going to take the direct sales approach or something, which you can totally do. So I think of it as a hub and spoke. I put the email list at the hub. It's where I have the great connection. I have full control. There's no algorithm between me and reaching my readers or fans. On Discovery, you want to go with something that has an algorithm that's pushing a lot of content. TikTok has a very strong Discovery algorithm. But once someone's a follower, that's a pretty weak relationship. Usually, the stronger the discovery algorithm is, the weaker the follower-fan relationship is. Personally, what I've done is Twitter and email. Twitter with the discovery algorithm, though it's changing constantly, apparently a favorite is 
way more valuable for spreading reach than a retweet, which yeah. <laughs> makes no sense. And I think is actually a very recent change. We don't need to get into the finer points of the Twitter <laughs> algorithm. But someone who's a video creator, like Ali Abdal, he's got a fantastic YouTube channel, I think three or four million subscribers. He's really good at driving them to an email list. That's what he's most comfortable with. I don't think podcasts and email, I think that's pretty challenging because podcasts don't have a great discovery algorithm. You really need either to be fantastic at guesting on other people's podcasts and then driving them back to your show, or you need YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, something else to drive to the podcast. And it's tough the other way around as well, because when you share a link to your podcast via an email, you have to share five or six different links to make sure that the person on the other end, you're sending them to their favorite podcast player or into another intermediary. So it's, it works. It's tough on both sides of that equation. You tapped into some of it, particularly with Twitter's algorithm and just algorithms more generally. Are there any timeless strategies to growth as a creator? It always feels like you just need to understand what's working in that moment, whether the algorithm is rating favorites more than retweets, etc. that kind of like the intricacies, but are there any more timeless strategies? The timeless thing is to create good content for a long period of time and to do it in a flywheel where you're not doing one-off activities to promote a new episode or promote a new essay, but really to have a system where, okay, a new podcast episode comes out. Here's exactly what I do to promote it. Here's how I'm asking the guests to promote it. Here's what we do with clips, where we're sharing those. Here's how I take the best ideas from the podcast, rewrite them into an essay. Here's where I publish that an exact process that you're running every single time. And you do that for three years, I guarantee you're going to be successful. I think what a lot of people do is these one-off activities where they're like, I recorded the episode, I tweeted about it, I asked the guest to share, and and we're on to the next episode. And so even like little questions that you ask every guest, what communities are you a part of right now talking about similar things? If you just add that little question into your flywheel, maybe that's an offline question afterwards, you're logging it in your Google Doc and going, okay, now every episode, I'm going to look at these 25 communities and be like, oh, this one's a really good fit to share in that. So I'm going to rewrite this as a guest post and I'm going to publish it on Indie Hackers. I'm going to publish it in this other place and really start to grow that audience. Also, creators who do well, maybe they have a twice a week podcast, but they're very deliberately recording three times a week. So they're doing twice a week on their own show. And the third time a week, they're saying... I'm going to be on someone else's show. And so then they're looking at and they're like, okay, cool. All of April, I've got my four slots booked on other people's shows. May, I just have one. So I need to go book three guest episodes on other people's shows for May. And then you're thinking about, okay, what am I going to go do? Who can I pitch? Who have I had on my show that might be willing to have me on theirs? And when you do it that way, then it's consistent over a long period of time and not like a, I'm just focused on my podcast oh shoot, my downloads aren't growing. Let me go do a sprint podcast tour on someone else's and grow this a bunch. This is all great. The thing you mentioned on the hub and spoke model completely resonates. I'm curious what you use your podcast for. And we'll give it a huge shout out. When we started this, a lot of it was to go behind the scenes, talk a little bit about the journey, just be completely open about what we do know, what we don't know, what we found that has worked and what hasn't. And you've done that incredibly well. And the inside baseball is excellent. So I highly recommend it to anybody who enjoys that dynamic about our podcast. Completely recommend you check out Nathan's. What is the purpose of that for you? Is it a funnel of some sorts or something else? It is entirely to meet people. 
It's the whole purpose. If no one else listened to it, that podcast would be a success. And I think being clear on that for me is really important because there's plenty of other channels that are way more effective at growing audience, growing revenue, that sort of thing. But what I found, and Dom, this goes back to something that you asked about, what activities should you be doing? I talked about create consistent content, like it's high quality for a long period of time, but building a network in the creator space. The number of people that you casually become friends with either from a conference or an event or guesting on their show. And then you just find that they follow you and then they're replying to your stuff and and you get a bunch of that and it gradually builds up. Like a random one is, I don't remember what the interaction was, but through some interaction, I got to know Harley Finkelstein from Shopify. I post things on Twitter and he replies to a ton of it. <laughs> you know, and, and you're like, at no point have we been on a call or met in person or anything, but it's like, oh, we're like Twitter friends now. And the more that builds up, like that happens one at a time and it adds up to then when you write a post that someone thinks is good, then a whole bunch of those Twitter friends are replying to it. And of course it gets shared a lot more. And so having a deliberate process for making friends on the internet is really, really important. And the two best ways that I've found to do it, assuming table stakes, you're creating great content, you're a likable person, all of that. Beyond those, two best things are conferences, like meeting people offline, And then the second thing is having a podcast and having people as guests on the show, because then you end up talking and meeting and then it turns into something from there. And so if you run a weekly interview podcast, guess what? You've got a flywheel running of meeting interesting people every single Tuesday at 9 a.m., whatever setup you have. And so that's effectively what my podcast is for. And then other people get to listen in. And so I'm asking a bunch of questions that I genuinely want to know. Get to meet great guys like us. And it was recommended to me by Liberty RPF, huge fan of the work that he does. And he was really boasting about a lot of the stuff that you do. So I think we've already seen it in two months of having this podcast, the extended reach even beyond what we were doing previously. You touched on something. I think you should be really clear of who you want your audience to be. I'm not going for 50,000 downloads of someone who's like, okay, how do I make money on the internet? Teach me. Zero to one, let's do that. I don't want that listener. There's a bunch of great shows out there for that listener. I want someone who is nerding out on this and is like, hey, I'm running a creator business that's doing $500,000 a year. I'm running a media company and I'm trying to figure out how to break into this other stuff. If I get 500 listeners and those are the people that, yeah, keep referring back to it, then that's way more valuable to me. When you think about my business model, I run a software company for professional creators and so the more that I'm in with that tier of people, the more they're saying, oh, check out Nathan from ConvertKit's show. Oh, do you use ConvertKit? Yeah, I actually do. And it goes from there. I think the other thing just on type of podcast is are you making something that's a moment in time show or like truly evergreen? Sam and Sean with My First Million, their show is fantastic and really entertaining and all that. But a lot of it is more moment in time. They're commenting maybe on recent news And you can go back and listen to the archives, but it doesn't have the same thing of like where I'm saying you have to go listen to episode 273 where they talk about whatever. Now, business breakdowns, you're creating this archive. And I'm saying like, you have to go listen to the Constellation software episode because of whatever. And I'm going to be talking, sitting around with my friends, you know, at a mastermind or something else and being like, oh, (laughs) you know, they're going to describe something like, yes, you're doing exactly what Constellation software does. The best place to understand this is this episode of Business Breakdowns or like 
I've been a huge fan of Wise for eight years or something like that. And so instead of me explaining it, I'm like, just go listen to the episode. And so thinking about, are you making a moment in time show or are you making something that people really refer back to? Timely versus timeless is the way that we always think about it. Oh, I like that. And timely, in fairness, has much more likelihood of going viral. So it's like SVB stuff was going out. We all asked ourselves, should we do a deep dive on a bank? And we considered different ways that we could do it. But ultimately, the episode that came out, I don't know what it was, but it was like call Exxon Mobil. Nothing to do with, you know, with, with the situation, but it has worked for us over time and it might be slower growth and we can tell her some things to being timely, but I definitely hear you on that trade-off. One thing that I'd point out is timely and timeless are not opposite ends of the spectrum. It's an X and Y axis and something can be timely and timeless, or it can also, you know, be not current and terrible. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Yes. 100%. And so if you look at what's the interaction, like, and maybe you wouldn't have been able to produce it in time at the quality level you want, but looking for things like, can I do a timeless episode about banking that comes out exactly when everyone is talking about SVB? Yeah. And if you do it weekly, a broken clock is right twice a day. So like every, in the <laughs> last right. couple of years, we've had a, a few that have been accidentally timely and timeless. Just going back to, you mentioned the podcast for you is just a place to meet people. And you also mentioned that events or conferences is the other great way of doing it. Is that the motivation behind ConvertKit's conference and event as well? Or is there something else slightly different to that? Yeah. So when we started Craft and Commerce, which is our event for professional creators every year in Boise, I've been a student of great events for a long time. I'm the person who I'm there like watching, oh, okay, really? No intro music before the <laughs> before the keynote comes on? You had an opportunity to like hype up the crowd for just a second. There was an event a few years ago, maybe eight years ago now, where I noticed that on the second day, the attendees were, it was a little bit lighter on attendees as usual, like you expect that. But organizers had pulled the very last row of chairs and so you didn't notice. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> I do the same at weddings. Yeah, I love studying events and like what makes them really good. Because I'm the person who, you know, you show up to the buffet and the line's only on one side. And I'm like, all right, this is, <laughs> this is unacceptable. We're fixing this right now. And so there's like a love of the, you can celebrate or criticize other people's events only so much before you're like, can I actually make something better? I think I can. And so that was part of it of just for the love of the game kind of thing. But really as a creator, so many of the inflection points in my creator career came from people that I met at events, talks that I heard, all of that. And so knowing how big of an inflection point it was for me, I was like, okay, I want to create that for other people. We didn't want to make it truly a user conference. I'd say about 60 to 70% of people who attend are ConvertKit customers, but there's plenty of people who aren't. It's good for customer acquisition, all that. It's very expensive for customer acquisition, but it's a lot of fun and it was a bummer to not do it during COVID. So it's fun to have it back. How do you measure it? It's one of those things that's just very difficult to measure a return on. So you kind of just cast it aside and say, I don't remind really a ton of intangibles here that I won't be able to measure cleanly. You can't measure it cleanly. I think there's a lot of things that you do for a brand that if you try to measure them, you're going to kill them off. You have to do them anyway. Taking that approach. Another example that we do is we produce these documentaries inside of ConvertKit. We send a film crew and all of that. And we interview these creators and tell their story and produce this 10 to 20 minute documentary. And we have a photographer come out and shoot these great photos that then they creators able to use and everything else. We're going to try to directly measure like, okay, how many customers have we gotten from that? 
you probably feel like, I don't like this 24-month payback period on this spend or 36-month or whatever. But it ends up being the engine that drives so much else in the business. One example is there's not a single stock photo on the ConvertKit website. 100% of all of our marketing photos and all of that are of creators using ConvertKit and they're photos that we took. If you were to set out to do that individually, that's incredibly hard and very expensive. But that's just one step in our storytelling flywheel that's turning constantly. We produce a book every two years of stories of creators. That would be this crazy undertaking. But really, you're just taking this flywheel that turns every single month. And then there's a bigger flywheel every 24 rotations that happens and a book comes out. And so I think of the conference in the same way. If you were to measure it by itself, it doesn't make sense. The things that I actually do try to measure are how many attendees immediately turn around and buy a ticket for next year. And then how good of an experience was it? Did you feel that energy? Are people raving about it on that last day? Did you get keynotes that nailed it? One of my other favorite things is I like to have a mix of big name keynotes that you would know well. We've had Casey Neistat and Mark Manson and Seth Godin speak and all that. And then I like to have a few people who you've never heard of because they've actually never given a conference talk before and then they blow you away. And so two things we do for every person who speaks, we hire a speaking coach for 100% of our speakers. Seth Godin's, it's okay if he doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't take us up on that. But then we also have our designers help with slides. There's this creator named Levi Allen, who's a filmmaker in British Columbia. And he gave this keynote. Oh, the other thing is we don't do hour keynotes. We go like 20 minutes to 40 minutes. And it really helps for making a polished talk. But Levi Allen gives this talk. And it's so good. And of course, he's a filmmaker, so he has great visuals through it all. And he just kills it. And people are like, wow, Levi, I had no idea you were such a polished speaker. Like, how many talks have you given? And he's like, first one. First time on stage. But it turns out if you hire a speaking coach for that someone, <laughs> they'll crush a 20-minute talk. And so I love that. That's my favorite thing. And then the creator has that. It's not like, oh, you gave your first talk at some small event in some crappy hotel ballroom with no like with bad AV. It's like, you made your speaking debut and crushed it. And that's the approach that we take. The other thing you've done that's been interesting is obviously you've started the events thing, which is it's an extension of the core business. It still ties into the core business, but then you've also kind of like gone deeper. You've niched down with the acquisition of FanBridge. I'm just curious now, I don't know how long exactly it's been since you've owned that business, but with the integration and making that acquisition, reflections on that process and what that's done for you as a business, getting a core specific group of creators onto the platform. So a lot of what was driving that is we noticed something in the market where actually the best people at email marketing are probably the ones that you don't want as customers. The old school direct response marketers who they know that world so well. And you're like, is this a scam? I wasn't going to say scammy, but I wanted to allude to scammy. Yes. Yep. There's a lot of companies, I think Infusionsoft, which is now called Keep, is a company that made this mistake early on because they are content creators, but it's just not things that you'd be really proud of. And all of that really started flocking to Infusionsoft as a platform. And then they got embraced there. And effectively what happened is you get more spam complaints, deliverability declines, and all of that. We watched that happen in 2013 to 2015 of realizing like, because they weren't super picky about who they took money from, they ended up damaging the reputation of the entire platform. And it's really, really hard to ever get that back. 
And so we had to be very deliberate about, no, this is the type of creator that we're focusing on. We're looking for people who like educate and entertain and all that. And we're very deliberate about not going down that path and maintaining really high open rates and, and everything else. You can't build a business avoiding something. You have to go towards something else. And so when we looked at, okay, who are the types of creators that really inspire us? And we were nailing it in the podcast space. We were nailing it with authors, bloggers, and we had some musicians. Actually, Tim McGraw, we randomly had him as a customer. It's like, do you have musicians? Like, not really, but we got Tim. He's legit. Maybe 2019, 2020, we made a very deliberate effort to grow in music specifically. And the other place that we grew a lot was in like film and documentaries. So adding a bunch of like National Geographic filmmakers and photographers who are just creating this great content. And so you'll see that like on our homepage, if you look at who's on there, it's really rounded out between content creators who you might traditionally think of and a National Geographic filmmaker like Amy Vitale or Arnold is on there. And it's all through a very deliberate effort to craft that narrative. And so the acquisition of FanBridge was a great way to bring on a thousand to twelve hundred musicians, ranging from someone like a uh, Leon Bridges to Motley Crue and whoever else, and that was really a company that they'd raised a good amount of funding in the traditional VC space, and then it had stalled out, and so we were able to make them a fair offer and bring that company over. So it ended up working out really well, both from a revenue and a brand perspective. Not a huge acquisition, but we learned a lot in the process. Can you tell the story? Because I think for people that haven't heard the story, it's a very interesting story. And this kind of goes how you operate just more broadly. It actually started because we were exploring like what else is being used in the music space as products. And we found that MailChimp was the most common by far. And then you get some like Salesforce Marketing Cloud, like Atlantic Records, for example, had all of their artists on Salesforce Marketing Cloud. And so you'd see trends like that. And then FanBridge kept coming up. And they had a phone number. This is something that I do pretty often of like, if I'm just curious, I'll pick up the phone. Anyway, and so I called and like someone just answered. And I was like, I don't know what I expected, but someone answering right away. And it was this guy named Scott, who's their general manager. So I started talking to him and I was like, just said I was a music manager looking for email stuff for last of my new artists. And so I learned about the business, found out they were pretty small, but had like a good client base. You know, he listed off a bunch of people. I'm like, all right, that's legit. And so I asked a bunch of questions and uh, went on from there. I did a bunch of research after that call over the next month, reached out as ConvertKit and started that conversation. I thought I was super clever. I called from my cell phone and Scott's not dumb. He's like a music manager in uh, it looks like a Boise, Idaho area code. Huh? What if I just Google this whole phone number? Oh, CEO of ConvertKit. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun to hear later that like <laughs> within an hour of getting off the call, he was like, I just talked to the CEO <laughs> of a competitor. Not So anyway, if you need a uh, business espionage, call someone else because I'm not actually good at it. But we really just talked to them over the next couple months and figured out what was important to them, put together a deal. It was a cash deal with a little bit of an earnout, and kind of went from there. The tech was quite a bit more legacy. We were migrating all the customers rather than integrating the, the software. Good detective work really did. The whole thing made me laugh to <laughs> a whole other level. We've done plenty of business breakdowns that when we hear MailChimp has, let's say, 30% of the market, everyone else is super fragmented. That just feels like a roll-up type environment. In your future, are acquisitions something that you continue to plan to do? Acquisitions are hard. 
Yeah. Small ones are as hard as big ones too. That's the crazy thing. Right. <laughs> I've only done smaller ones, but we just finished another one that we'll be able to talk about in a couple of months. And it was definitely a lot smoother going through it the second time. I knew a lot more what to expect, but the legal fees are just as big and everything else. I was talking to friends and was like, I paid this in legal fees. And they're like, yeah, I think you got a pretty good deal. I was like, oh, all right. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm going to stop complaining. Nice empathy. <laughs> There's a bunch of acquisitions in a roll-up happening in the email space from Campaign Monitor and CM Group. So they got acquired by, I think what private equity fund, I can't remember, but bought Campaign Monitor and then went through and bought Delivera and Sail Through and Emma and a whole bunch of other ones. And so that's been going on for quite a while. And we get an email from them every quarter of like, hey, come join the Borg. Um, can we make a Star Trek reference? You know, like, but even that whole business, they're still, I don't know what I'd guess. If someone actually knows, email me and tell me. I'd guess like five to 600 million a year in revenue across that whole conglomerate of eight major email providers. I'm not sure because I think the small startups are going to be have such high valuations for their revenue. You can't really acquire them unless they truly stall out. And I don't think anyone's over-raising quite to the extent that's necessary. Maybe Substack. Maybe Substack will be in that place where they're acquirable. The community round after the $650 million raise is not the best look, which is kind of a bummer because I love community rounds. I think as an idea, it's fantastic. And I just hate that there's a few of these examples of people doing it when they really shouldn't. Yeah, giving it bad rep. <laughs> the optics weren't great. And it's something that I love the tool. I think it's amazing. I have major questions over the economic model, whether that'll actually work. And I think if there's been a business lesson to me over the past 10 years, it's like there's a lot of great consumer items out there, but they might not actually be viable businesses. Just because it's something that people adopt and use every day doesn't necessarily mean it's a viable business. And there's a few different ways you can address that, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yep. I actually think customer.io, which is in like the email space more for developers, they did a good size round, had the growth to justify it maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And they did a community round as part of that. Here we're raising 25 million from institutional investors, all the economics support it entirely. And here's a $5 million round as part of that that is available. And I think that's fantastic because it's like, look, we're letting people in on the same terms rather than we tried to go to professional investors, couldn't get a deal done at 30 times revenue or something, or 30 times ARR, not even revenue. It's just more companies with sound economics will do community rounds so that the reputation doesn't get tarnished of otherwise a good tool. One of the things that has started to show up is that there's actually been changes in the technology of email. I'm not sure exactly if it's technology or the code behind the email where you can do more things. You can have a survey that's actually done in the email. You don't have to jump to a different landing page. How much more is there to be done there inside the actual email, that real estate, and make it a more interactive experience? Where do you think we are with that and how much innovation is left there? Well, it depends on what happens with email clients over time. So Gmail is totally dominant. Something like 50% of all email opens of what we see is on Gmail. And so these added experiences, Gmail can make a lot more happen with that. But it's not going to work in the same way on if it's opened in Apple Mail or Yahoo or whatever else. And there's a huge long tail of providers. And especially if you are targeting enterprises, schools, any of that, then you're going to end up in 
Lotus Notes is still a thing. And so then you're just going to have so many problems. So backwards compatibility is the hardest thing. There's two things that we've built out that are still not widely copied, which is surprising to me. The first one is that when you send an email in ConvertKit, if you have a broken link, let's say you're a creator doing a product launch, new books coming out, and you're like, all right, I built up to this for a month or a year. You send the email like, go buy it. And you start getting the replies back. People are like, hey, dude, broken link. You got an extra slash in your URL there. And usually what happens is you have to turn around and send another email and be like, sorry, like broken link. And it's actually like an internet marketing tactic because they find that it's super dumb. But in ConvertKit, you can just go edit the link after the email has been sent and change the destination of where it goes, which is one of those things that after it's explained, you're like, oh, obviously, because the link is all tracked. And so it hits the server and then to track the click and then it can go somewhere else. And so what we do is we just say, yep, pass that on, pass that on. Oh, but this one, send it that way instead. But no one else has done this. And so I still don't understand why. Another one is video is not widely supported at all in email. But actually Apple, all Apple clients support it really well. And some aspects of Gmail support video and email well. And so another thing that we built is a whole system that if you embed a YouTube video in email, it retranscodes it so that it can go out. And we've got a custom embed built for email that in Apple Mail, it'll play a full video. And then in others, it'll fall back to like a 10 second GIF that makes it look like the video and you click to play. And so there's a bunch of things that it's hard to make it work because of backwards compatibility, but there's a lot of cool stuff happening. So it'll come, but it'll develop slowly. Do you think there's as much opportunity to innovate on the RSS side? And I ask this as a completely open-ended question without any leading because I don't know what that would look like. But given your technical background, I'm curious how much innovation opportunity exists there. I haven't seen much there that's interesting. It's a pretty straightforward protocol. One thing that I think is interesting is if you're doing dynamic content and emails, with dynamic ad insertion, you could do that too. There's some good platforms to do that. But most of the dynamic ad insertion platforms don't actually like email well. That's something that we're playing with and trying to understand better and get in that space. There's a lot of reasons why. But like the Trade Desk and others, I don't think they really do email because they can't do their same dynamic insertion at the level that they want. Because basically, if I'm sending an email to everybody, I have to decide which ad is going to be served to you at send time. They want to decide on page load which ad, and they might even switch it out in the same viewing session. And you just can't do that in email. We'll see. We're trying to play in that space. But I think on the RSS side, one thing you can build out in ConvertKit is if you have a library of content, I could say like, hey, I care about following, making media and founders, but like not business breakdowns and invest like the best. And so you could make a, an email that automatically generates based on my interests and sends out the latest episodes of each one. But that's about as advanced as I see anyone doing with RSS. The recent boom, I guess I would call it, in the creator economy, was that an overall net positive? You made some reference before to you have bad actors in situations and they can tarnish brands, they can tarnish even certain things like community rounds. What do you think is the shakeout from that huge rise really from COVID until last year in the creator economy and whether there's any shakeout today? It's been very good for the creator economy. There's so many more ways to earn a living. That's ultimately what we're trying to do. ConvertKit's mission is that we exist to help creators earn a living. 
everything that we're doing is around, okay, how can we pay creators more money and help them grow faster? As you get more platforms coming on, nothing really came of it, right? But TikTok and others were kind of forced to like, hey, we got to pay creators too. YouTube is still the only one that pays meaningful amounts of money to creators from like an ad perspective. It was really good overall. You could raise money at absolutely ridiculous amounts then. What I hope doesn't happen is that investors feel burned on the creator economy wave. And they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to go invest in people who serve traditional B2B. We don't need the investment, but I just think it serves the whole ecosystem much better. If sound companies are raising money at sound valuations and then like continuing to, to operate really well. I'm curious in this down market in tech, just how many company failures we're going to have. I'll be there to buy the assets, but I just hope that overall the market stays consistent and predictable and, and generates good returns because that'll just be good for the ecosystem over the next 10 years rather than just being opportunistic in the next 10 months. Makes sense. Kind of moving a little bit to your personal stuff. One of your, I guess, values is just being public, whether it's through the blog or on podcasts, anywhere else. And within your company as well, I think you're just very open. I don't know whether you still have an open book policy. Is there a tipping point to that stuff in terms of like sharing when you get to a particular scale, particularly in business? I imagine some of the being transparent about everything, there are downsides to it. So like, what are the common pain points? And is there a point at which you got to like, Ugh, maybe I want to dial this back or, or not? Just diving into the downsides. I've had multiple competitors say like, wow, thank you for keeping your metrics dashboard updated in real time. Like that is super helpful. We genuinely appreciate it. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> I think that transparency in that way usually comes out in one of two camps. It's either marketing-driven or mission-driven. Transparency it can be very effective marketing. If you're able to say, you know, whatever company crosses 10 million in ARR, on the, everyone wants to talk about that. It gives me a headline to be able to go on podcasts. And you see this for everything else because like, oh, I had no idea this company was that big. And so this building public idea can be great marketing. And I'd encourage it for that. But that's where it's going to be for a season. Do that for as long as it serves you and then stop doing it. For us, it's mission-driven. And so that's where... Going back to early in my career, I had no idea what a good salary was. I remember the first time trying to negotiate a salary for my first real job. I've been freelancing. I've done all this, but I had no idea. Is $40,000 a year good? Is sixty? What can I ask for? And there's not transparency. So you just don't know. And it takes someone saying like, no, $40,000 a year for a design position at the startup is not what you should be taking. This is back in 2008 or something, pushing for $60,000 a year. It's like, okay, had no idea. Thanks for telling me. Or when someone's like, uh, hey, I did this product launch and it did really well. And here's five ideas for how to do a great product launch. I'm like, is really well $500, $5,000, $500,000? I don't know. Because if it's $500,000, your advice is probably not what, what I should take because I have a tiny audience. Also, if really well is $500, also not taking your advice because my ambitions are higher or, or whatever. So it gives context to all of this. I think that for me, I learned so much when people shared their numbers about their ebook launch that made $8,000 or how they built this other business to $50,000 a month in recurring revenue. And the number of times that I saw that happen went, oh, I could do that. That was huge. And I referenced customer.io earlier and ConvertKit and customer.io were built at about the same time. And I knew Colin in the early days and we we're going after very different markets, email space. So we would talk, but he grew from $2,000 a month to $50,000 a month in a 12-month period. And he wrote a blog post about it. And I remember loving that. I'm like, wow, 
okay, I'm going to go all in on ConvertKit. If I could get to even half of that in a single year, like that would be amazing. Now, turns out when you get momentum and things take off, we went from 2000 a month to 100000 a month in 12 months. And so we actually did double that. But like just sharing those numbers and, and being transparent in that way was amazing for me. And so I've always had this idea that I want to pay it forward. And then as the numbers got bigger, having a real-time dashboard was important. Because now if you're a founder and you're like, okay, I'm at 20000 a month in revenue, churn is really hard. We're at 7% monthly churn. Everyone's saying that our company is going to totally die and never make it anywhere. I wonder what ConvertKit's churn was when they were at 20000 a month in revenue. And they can go on the dashboard, go sort MRR, and I don't know when the date was, but say June 2015. And they go, like, okay, what was churn then? Oh, 7%. Whoa, I could actually get through this. There's so much more information than just little snippets in a podcast or a blog post. So for me, it's mission-driven. I have plenty of money. Just trying to help other people make more money. The last thing I'd say on it is that a lot of people, it's taboo to talk about money in some ways. So if I'm like, hey, how's business going? Oh, really good. We just hired five more employees. Oh, we're going to double headcount this year. Because apparently you can talk about number of employees, but you can't talk about revenue. And then what I think happens is subconsciously, you start optimizing, not for revenue, not for profit, but for number of employees. And you get these companies because they're saying we're doubling headcount <laughs> this year, which is a terrible business idea. If you have to double headcount to maintain everything in the rest of your business, totally do that. <laughs> but should never be a leading goal. And it's a leading goal for so many people. And that's why I think as we come down the other side, we're already at, it's April of 2023, and we're already at the same number of layoffs in tech as all of last year. And I think it's because a bunch of people optimized for the wrong thing because they were subconsciously sharing the wrong metric. And so if you just talk about like, hey, business is going well. We're at 34 million a year in revenue. We're adding a million in revenue every 60 days. I'm trying to get that to now we're doing it every 55. Like, however you talk about that, I'm just saying my goals, the numbers that I'm actually tracking. And I think subconsciously it works much better. The marketing thing, that's fairly obvious. That makes sense. The mission thing is a whole different category. Do you recommend other people do it? And acknowledging that it is really difficult. I mean, we try to be open and we've even hit a limit in terms of what we're comfortable in sharing in terms of some of these things. But where do you stand in terms of recommending that kind of stuff? It all depends on why you would do it. What's the goal? If we're going to be more transparent, to what outcome? For many of the same purposes, which is the lessons that you can take away. Like The whole purpose of the platform is to learn together. But we're also trying to make this into a business. We do want to show that you cannot just learn from the content itself. You can actually implement the content and make it into a good business. But there's some uncomfortable dynamics there because, well, who am I monetizing? Is it you, the listener? And then it feels a little bit in their face. So that's where it gets into this fuzzy area, I would say. I mean, I'm a listener and I know that to run an effective business, you should be monetizing (laughs) me as a listener. You are also the one who is the most transparent person that I might have actually ever met up until this point. Like there's other people who have done this in the past and then they cut it off. So so I would ask, like, are you mission inclined or mission driven? And if you're on the fence about it... At this point, yeah. Mission curious is what <laughs> I would describe it as. You can go either way. Totally fine. That level of transparency is a part of your mission, then it answers all these other questions for you. Well, maybe I should tie back to the marketing or the business dynamics. It helps you in the early stages. At this point, do you think it's having benefits that are accruing to you or are they mostly accruing to other people in your 
audience, your readers? I do think we're at a tipping point in that. We're in the middle of completely changing our business model. That's something that we probably need to execute on for another year until I can fully talk about it. But in that, I don't know that it serves us to be transparent to the level that we are. It's changing a lot of how the industry works. And I don't think it's probably useful to telegraph that to competitors. Are you able to give it like a high level sketch of what that means? At the very highest level, there's better ways to monetize than subscription revenue. And so, you know, as you get into that at scale, our North Star is how do we pay creators as much money as possible? And so when you focus on that as the metric, then what percentage of that revenue can you take home, either in in advertising or anything else? And so there's probably a point where it doesn't make sense. That whole new section of the business, like our sponsorship network and all that, there's no public metrics about that. And I don't think I'm going to go out of my way to go build that dashboard. I have theories based on what you've written in the past of where this might go, but I'll keep them to myself or, or off microphone. <laughs> maybe maybe when we stop recording, yeah, yeah. Also, I can break it down a little more. But We hit your limit, which makes me feel like we've accomplished something. My next <laughs> yeah. question was going to be, what don't you... like? Do you have certain limits in terms of what you will publicize? What I think is also how new something is. How well do you know and understand it? On one hand, there's this idea of putting it out there and calling your shot and saying like, hey, I think this is where I see the market's going. This is what's happening. And so I wrestle with that. How much should we do that and see like, this is how it's going to work versus how much does it change the equation for everything else? But yeah, I think you didn't. I think you probably found my limit. (laughs) One of the things you wrote about in your 22 letter... And this goes back to the admirable points of being open as you kind of talked a little bit about the toll it's taken on your health in the last year of just being really immersed in the business and a few things going on business-wise and almost being too involved. How do you weigh up some of that stuff, the personal toll of this success, if you like, of working super hard for the last 10 years, building a number of different things, not just ConvertKit and the various ventures we talked about today, but some other businesses you've also got going. You reflect on that now, having gone through some of those experiences last year. I think my biggest takeaway from last year is just how important a great executive team is. It's those times that you're down a leader that makes it really hard. And I don't really feel like I have the option of being like, oh, that's okay that we're down a leader. Like, we'll just let that team operate. And so I tend to step into that role of like leading our growth team or something. One mistake that I made last year is when our VP of growth left the company, I stepped in, was filling that role, which totally made sense. I don't know that that was the mistake. But I decided to, we were recruiting to replace that role ourselves. After about five months of doing that and not getting the level of talent that I was hoping for, we went out and hired a recruiting firm, did an executive search firm, paid them. All of a sudden, every candidate that they brought us was on the level of the best candidates that we were finding before. And yeah, you know, that was $100,000, $150,000 check that I, as a, bootstrap founder and all that was not wanting to write at first. Like those lawyers again. Yeah, exactly. And I should have just done that on day one. And so that was interesting of the toll for me, we would have had the right person a lot sooner. It was a much easier process. And then it wouldn't have been nearly as stressful of a year for me if I'd taken a different approach. You... Also, in addition to ConvertKit, do all this stuff outside of ConvertKit as well. You bought this local newspaper, launched basically like a local piece of content. One, how has that gone? And two, how does that fit into your overall mission, what you're setting out to do? 
Yeah. So I have a bunch of other side projects that I do. There's quite a few. I'm really optimizing on those for, am I learning? Am I helping friends make money? And am I doing something offline? Maybe. So like Airbnbs and like that short-term rental business I built up because uh, I could do with friends, help them make money. And I like things with my hands. That turned into a good business. What you're talking about with From Boise, which is my local newsletter about Boise. And I really wanted to do more things in the community and I wanted this to exist. And it was inspired by Andrew Wilkinson from Tiny. He has one in British Columbia called the Capital Daily. And I thought, that's amazing. And I realized like, wait, I can run this entire business on ConvertKit. It's another way to dog food the product. So I launched that. That one I didn't do myself. I immediately hired someone and then had them fully run it. They were fantastic. Her name's Marissa. And then when I realized my idea just got twice as good or more based on her execution on it, I was like, oh, come and be a 50-50 partner with this on me. And so that's been good. I probably spend an hour a month, if that, on there. But it's so fun, like around local businesses. One example, I play a bunch of soccer. And so playing indoor soccer late one night and chatting with a friend afterwards and He's telling me about the coffee cart that he started and how that's going. And it's a little slow. And, and I was like, can I tell you what my side project is? And he's like, no, what is it? I was like, oh, it's 10,000 people in Boise on an email list. Like, <laughs> and so we were able to do a big feature on his coffee cart. And he had the busiest weekend he's ever had. That's a lot of fun. And so I think eventually, like I know I'm going to be in Boise for a very long time, probably forever. Having distribution, there's a phrase, first-time founders care about product, second-time founders care about distribution. I care about distribution. And so I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but I know that having... Now we're at like 22,000 readers on the email list in Boise. I know that having distribution in my hometown is going to be very useful. And I'm just keeping that card in my back pocket for whatever. Yeah. Physical location, the dynamics of that, the distribution in your territory. There's something there that I feel like is still relatively untapped and could be the next wave of things, but we can continue that and <laughs> a part two conversation at some point in the future. This was awesome. Really appreciate your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Learned a lot as we always do from your content. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, all right. First thing is first, I did not predict the business model change. That I had a higher ambitions, and I think he will eventually get to my prediction. And there's an in between prediction, but we'll leave it at that. You were looking quite smug about it as well, looking like I know what you're talking about without talking about it specifically. And then turns out you didn't. So maybe an apology is in order. I just admitted to it. I think that's enough. He didn't apologize. <laughs> I'm calling my shot. He will eventually get there too, because he's the person to connect all those dots. I thought that was a bit harsh of you saying his new business model is not ambitious enough. I'm getting attacked now. I don't know what I did to deserve this. No, it's very ambitious. I tried to correct myself before you interrupted me. I think there's different levels to this. And he's going up the staircase or up the ladder, as you would call it. And I jumped a few steps too high. And he has an in-between step, which actually connects to the final step too. So hopefully we beat around the bush enough there. It was an abrupt change of pace from your early part of the conversation where you couldn't say enough nice things about Nathan and his business. I'm highly complimentary. I think he shares a lot of information. He surprised me within the interview in terms of some of the things he said. And 
I had positive things to say. Like, I'm not going to hide it from our listeners that I think this person has good content out there. We talked about this beforehand. It's a really hard interview to do when so much of what he has in his mind is public. So it's like, do I ask the questions which I've already read about? Or do I ask questions that are a layer deeper, even though he's talked about those layers deeper as well? So it was a tricky one. How do you think we pulled it off? I think we did all right. I think there was lots of things that he mentioned, which I had read or he had alluded to in his writing. But then he either had a different angle or put it in a different way or added stuff. I've specifically got a lot of original content. The thing that really is beating around my brain after the conversation is how he uses his podcast for very specifically just to meet people. And I think that goes to the heart of what making media is for us. And I think it's something that I hadn't really like figured beforehand. I thought if you'd asked me two months ago before we started the show, I would have said, I'm looking forward to learning more about media in general. But I think the connections we've made through the podcast are way more valuable than even the lessons I've learned. I've learned a lot of doing it. But now having those people and interacting with them on Twitter or over email since we've talked to them, I can only see that getting better as well and compounding the more people you speak to and the more conversations you have with these people that we've already spoken to. And even if, to be honest, I think I'm probably... The growth of the podcast in terms of listener base is maybe like disappointing from my perspective, but everything else trumps that and makes it much more worthwhile than I would have expected going into it. Yeah, I think that's definitely right just in terms of the connectivity to the different people. You have the guest list, which you can just take a look at, which is public, and all of those people now being somewhat in our network and being able to exchange messages with them, thoughts with them. That's really interesting, especially because it represents a group of people, I think, outside of what we traditionally cover on our other shows. But then also using this as real estate to tap into other guests. Best example is the Spike episode leading to the Ethan episode on business breakdowns of the NBA. That's had some really interesting impact. So there's a lot behind the scenes. There's also a lot that happens that shows up in our direct business. And yeah, I think that was one of the most interesting things about him that I did not necessarily appreciate was how much he did value human interaction and network more than I expected. And only because he is so data-driven, he's so analytical, he is so process-oriented. And I think this happens quite a bit with what I see online is there's a lot of people who highlight category your audience, XYZ. And you're like, well, they're not really talking about the content much. And it's not that they don't value high quality content as much, if not more as us. It's just that's table stakes. That's already to be expected. And I think that's kind of like what happened here is I saw all of his process oriented things and I'm like, well, I wonder how much he cares about who the individual in the audience is or is it just about growing the audience? And it's very clear he does actually care about who's in the audience. So that was when I mentioned being surprised. That was the expectation that I had that was a surprise. Yeah, it brings up a question that I didn't ask him, but I, I was thinking about, I'm going to say he's an extrovert based on like, he just likes meeting people both in person and online. And it makes me think creators in general, I would love to do a breakdown of how many extroverts versus introverts there are. And I know that's a crude breakdown. It feels very much like you have to be a certain type of person to really do well as a creator. Now, I would love someone to challenge me on that. To me, the courage to put yourself out there, particularly on social media and to write in public, I think holds a lot of people back who may have great ideas and great output, but don't necessarily want to put themselves above the parapet. It's interesting. My expectation is it's actually a little bit different. I think the people that you see online that are writing so much on Twitter and some other platforms might not be extroverts. 
because I think doing it digitally is a lot different than doing it physically. So that's a bit of my hunch. And a lot of the pent up extroversion is coming out in digital form rather than coming out in physical environments. Just a loosely held belief. And maybe it's just the people that make the most noise that I'm thinking about in my mind. They're probably the extroverts, but there's a lot of people doing good work that maybe you don't see um, every five minutes on Twitter. That's fair. A very tight process that he has for pretty much everything that he does. And I think that is like huge for any type of scaling. But it was interesting, and I mentioned this in the episode, the people that I always love are those that make me feel anxious about what I am doing. And he was one where I was thinking to myself, we have a pretty buttoned up process for our shows and sourcing and the production, editing, distribution, all that. But it feels like he even had layers deeper that we could tap into. And maybe it's just slightly tweaking it. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily like talking bad about our process, but there was a few things that I picked up that we could potentially add. So here's where I net out on that. I think you're right. I think the bit we're light on is the growth side of it, which he's really nailed in his process, particularly talking about communities. We need to add that into our process of like asking people which communities they're a part of or which ones they really thrive within because we don't do any of that. I think our process is really good on conversation quality. It's not so good on the after sales fact of even asking people to share on Twitter. We've kind of done that in the past, but not really. We almost feel afraid of asking. We could be more bullshit on that and really getting into the nitty gritty of where do you go and talk to people about your podcast or your show or your content, getting into those circles. So that will be something I will be implementing. Yeah, I agree there. And then I guess the last thing is just on email versus RSS was pretty interesting and some of the capabilities that email could tap into. And I think I've started to see it. We could definitely do a little bit more with our newsletter and we're testing a bunch of stuff out. That was one. The RSS stuff, I feel like there's more that can be done there because it is a form of push and it'll ultimately come down to like the platforms and whether they want to embrace that. But it feels like there's an innovation opportunity with RSS that doesn't necessarily exist yet. And there's a lot of room for improvement and growth. I just honestly don't know exactly where in the chain it should happen. Is it the server that is distributing this and then collecting the data? Is it the actual players where I think there is a lot of innovation happening at the player level, but you then have to worry about where your listener is coming from. And he talked a little bit about how that is similar in email where Gmail has a lot of capabilities. Apple has a lot of capabilities. Lotus Notes does not have a lot of capabilities. So there's differentiation. But that to me felt like something where I just want to understand a little bit better. I should understand it better. It seems like there's something there. It will come surely through Apple and Spotify and probably Spotify, given that Apple's kind of given up on podcasts. Like I do get some notifications from Apple that a podcast that I follow has just been released. I wouldn't say they're very good and they don't seem to be like particularly systematic. I think Spotify should be thinking about this quite heavily. I'm sure they are. At a certain point in the iPhone evolution, you would have assumed that you would have just got push notifications from every app all of the time. I turn most of my notifications on my phone off but like email obviously flows into there and you can kind of read them and delete or open as you please. Notifications on your phone has never really like become a thing. It's almost like been more of a nuisance than anything. And maybe that was at a certain point in time, people overdid it. And I don't even mean so much notifications. I mean, you are going into your email app every day. That is a decision on your part. Just like you're going into a social media app. It is the destination. You might be doing that in your podcast player where you're going in every day. But it's more about once you are there, once you have your email open, once you have your podcast playing, it is the dynamic interaction that you might be able to have with the podcast. So now you're seeing with Spotify, you can click on various things like 
an advertisement can bring you right to the page. You'll be able to, to convert into a listener to different shows fairly easily. It'll just be a click away because they can take up the real estate that was previously taken up with your cover art. And it feels like there's just like a lot of room for improvement with that. And where you actually see it, this is happening in all different areas. Amazon now with the videos, shows that you're watching, you can see basically when you pause, not only the actors' names, but you can see outfits and actually purchase those outfits. So it's changing like the commerce dynamics within these platforms and technology should enable a lot of that. And I think with RSS, it is that direct relationship. And now if it's like, if you can enhance what's on the other side of what you're getting pushed, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I think in Spotify is doing this, they've got polls and Q and A's now and that like is probably step one in the road to doing something slightly more interesting. I love the differences between the US and the UK in this stuff. I don't think if I force my Amazon, I'll be able to buy anything. Think that you guys have got capitalism down to a T, whereas we're a bit more gun shy when it comes to stuff like that. I do want to call out Apple and Google for just never investing a dollar or a pound into their email servers. The iPhone email app is horrific, and Gmail is similarly bad on my desktop. They obviously don't make any money from these things, but for the number of users they have, they're just shockingly bad. And it frustrates me all of the time, and it must frustrate someone like Nathan as well. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Yeah, there's important links in the chain and they're not pulling the weight on their own ends. That's why we get so angry with Apple and Spotify. So everybody's got their own behemoths that they're frustrated with. Any other thoughts? I have an idea for you for a future episode. And we've kind of talked a bit about this before. But given every conversation in media comes back to content is key. You have to start there. That's the beginning, probably the middle and probably the end for, for all media businesses. We need to find someone really interesting and just dive into a specific piece of content, talk through how the idea formed, how they executed it, how they pushed it out, just get really nitty gritty on one specific piece of content. I know there's a podcast called One Perfect Story that does that very well. I think we can do a similar thing with either podcasts or some other piece of content. I would love to do that because I think that was such an interesting way of just showcasing why content is so important because everyone talks about it. And I think there is an interesting way to bring it to life. Somebody who can really break down the nuts and bolts of it too. I think some people can say, oh, it's just great you know, when you hear it. And honestly, it's not that helpful. I think there was a great article bringing back to sports, which I probably rely on a little bit too much. But there was a recent article where a journalist sat down with Bryce Harbor and watched his at-bat where he hit this game-winning home run. And they went through the details and exactly what was going through his brain at the time. And that, I think, is excellent. You go again behind the scenes, but get somebody's insights as to what they were thinking here, what they were thinking there. I think you're right about that. And yes, it's art, but there's got to be some science or you got to be able to make some pattern recognition as to what makes certain things great. So I'm with you on that. I could do it with you on Harvard Business Publishing episode or the UPS episode you did for Business Breakdowns last year. Do you think you get into those details? <laughs> I don't think that I would be the right person to, to supply you as a guest. All right, I'll keep looking. Yeah, but we can come up with some ideas and people can send through ideas. So send them our way. If you thought there was a particularly great episode or other piece of content that you would love to understand, like the nuts and bolts to it, backstory, what went into it, send it our way. We would love to cover that. You know what? We'll do it in the Q&A on Spotify as well. So if you're listening on Spotify, just drop into the Q&A and you can put your answer in there. Wow. I love this. I love this using all the dynamic tools that we have. Amazing. Well, great. Any last thoughts? I just admire quite a bit about how Nathan goes about his business. I was very surprised in a very good way. And just even thinking about how he is wanting to help his friends out financially and also like gives him some interesting outlets for his creative juices. 
the Boise newsletter. Just very fun, but also there is some sort of philanthropic element to it, which I admire. Yeah, I have this hard time thinking about different things. It's like side hustles. I have certain things that I do, and I don't really talk about them for a variety of different reasons. And it's like, well, I don't think I'm like the expert on rental properties. I don't think I'm the expert on investments. I think I can do a good job, but like I don't have a ton to add. And he's not presenting himself as the expert. And he's doing it with much more scale than I'm doing anything. So that's that's a different conversation. He got to start somewhere. It made me rethink things because he does it in what feels like a tasteful way when he's presenting that particular stuff, which can be very sensitive. So while you are sitting in the shed you built as a side hustle during COVID. So I did not build the shed, to be clear. The shed was purchased. <laughs> so you just bought the shed. That's all you did. Yeah. The shed was purchased. I did not build this. Not my own hands. The things I built are much smaller scale tables, stools. We're working our way up. Yeah. Got to start with the foundation. You called Nathan out for having a lack of ambition. That's quite rich coming from you. I want to have the record set. That was not the case. But nonetheless, I believe that my prediction will come true. Let me leave it there. All right. Fantastic. All right. We will see you next week. Bye.